Well, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to the um, International History Department's um, annual lecture. Thank you all very much for coming along um, this evening. Uh, my name is Matthew Jones. I'm the head of department, and I'm delighted to introduce um, our speaker this evening, Patricia Clavin. Now, Patricia is a professor of international history and fellow and tutor in history at Jesus College, Oxford. Although her interests range widely across the whole of 20th century Europe, uh, Patricia has published extensively on the history of the interwar years, particularly on matters relating to international economy and the subject of international organizations and institutions. Her first book, The Failure of Economic Diplomacy, Britain, France, Germany, and the United States, 1931-36, appeared in 1996, and this was followed four years later by the Great Depression in Europe. That's the book, not the event. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, the book, The Great Depression in Europe, 1929-1939, um, which is now actually in its second edition. More recently, in 2013, she published Securing the World Economy, The Reinvention of the League of Nations, 1920-1946, a book which won the British Academy's medal, which recognizes work that is judged a landmark achievement that has transformed understanding. Now, Patricia will talk to us tonight on the intriguing subject, and with a lot of local resonance for people at the school, on the subject of the LSE and the genesis of global governance. And Patricia will talk for about 45 minutes for the lecture, which will give us time to have some questions and answers and comments afterwards. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE history. Um, I ask you to put your phones on silent, please, so as not to disrupt the lecture. And also remind you all that the event tonight is being recorded. I also have an announcement to make about Rag Week. Um, this is Rag Week, and the fundraising arm of the Students' Union um, are raising money for three charities. One local, the Felix Project, one national, Refugee Action, and one international, Doctors Without Borders. Um, students from RAG will be collecting funds for their charities outside uh, the lecture this evening and, in fact, all the LSE's public events during this week. So please give what you can to support these three worthwhile causes. So can we all um, welcome Patricia to the stage to give her lecture? Thank you, Matthew, for that generous introduction. Um, uh, I'm honored by the invitation and delighted to be back here at the LSE. I did my um, undergraduate degree and my PhD at King's College, uh, just over the road, but I was part of what was then the federal London degree system, so, uh, which was pretty porous. So in fact, I did undergraduate courses uh, in different colleges in London uh, and was a regular uh, attender and well, user of your library and especially your archives. Uh, and seminars and lectures. So for me, it's quite a thrill just to be standing on this stage where I've uh, heard eminent people, many people a lot more eminent than me. Um, I wanted to thank Matthew uh, for the invitation along with the International History Department and also Alice Bryant, who's taken care of the practical uh, side of the arrangements. Um, I was going to say something about RAG Week 2 um, uh, and the students' uh, campaign for three projects this year, and that's because the subject of my lecture, actually, the contents of my lecture have quite a lot to do with the three campaigns that are running, one against food waste and hunger, the second one on refugees, action, and the third one on Doctors Without Borders, so I'll give them another name check now. Um, 
Uh, that's because today's student activism uh, echoes the political and social engagement of LSE students 100 years ago. Uh, and it features in this lecture, which has two broad aims. The first goal is to show how the material breakdown, so questions related to economic and social issues, were central to shaping the global order after the First World War. Global order is a recurring theme of this lecture and is a concept I take to mean the relations between states, markets, and civil society. So I'm not just talking about states when, I, when I'm talking about global order, but also the way that they connect and configure and, and seek to manage and interact with people and markets. And 100 years ago... Uh, not quite this month, uh, it was institutionalized in the aftermath of the First World War in the League of Nations, the, the world's first intergovernmental organization, which opened its doors in 1920, which in fact is the same year that King George V laid the foundation stone for this building uh, and marked a fresh phase of expansion under the, the LSE's then director, William Beveridge. And uh, I can tell, because I was here quite a lot 30 years ago, there's an awful lot of expansion going on at the moment as well. This lecture underlines Britain's central role in the League of Nations, and it focuses as much on the practice of British diplomacy as on the ideas behind it. It's important to draw this distinction, so the distinction between practice and ideas, because so much new writing on the history of global governance routinely plants it in the realm of ideas. There's a lot of new work that's being produced on the League of Nations and on international cooperation and international, internationalism, but quite a lot of it relates to the different ideas and, and social movements it connected to. And that's the case whether it relates to collective security, rights, capitalism, or the development of regional or international institutions. And in some ways, this is a bit at odd with the, odds with the field of international relations, which has become preoccupied with understanding practices of international organization. Practices that are understood as inconsistent, habitual, and reflect a background disposition acquired through practice. So actually what they're saying is that international organizations operate by building habits of working, ways of making the international system work, which is not so much about the ideas or certainly helps to explain why the ideas, when you study them, appear to be inconsistent. And you'll notice there are a few inconsistent ideas in my lecture, which hopefully are not to do with my thinking, but rather to do with inconsistencies with what my actors are doing. And actually, this focus on practices uh, is a perspective that works very well for international historians and for taking a historical approach to the making of global order after 1920. If the history writing on the League of Nations were to be, and the League um, and the Global Order were to be pitched as a sitcom to Netflix, you might, it might read the kind of usual line would be British pacifists meet American moralists and failure follows. That's the kind of classic line of the way that we understand the League of Nations. It's sort of, it's born in 1920 and then it starts to fail in lots of different ways. 
In contrast, I want to underline the importance of economic and social issues to the quickening of the League and to highlight British networks with close ties to it. And I want to show the longevity of those networks, that actually the League of Nations, it continues until 1946 when it's formally wound up and, and try and indicate some of the ways that those practices lived on in the international order up until today. And there are different groups that actually are interested and engaged in the League despite very different concerns. Student activists and bankers make unusual bedfellows, but both were caught up in the forging of global order in 1920. And this brings me to the second major aim of this lecture, which is to highlight a few of the individuals and groups associated with the LSE, staff, students, women activists, whose contributions to British and international life are either part of the institutional history or now curated in the LSE Women's Reading Room, which is a fantastic resource. And it shows how the LSE helped to shape and critique new practices of global governance in ways that continue to resonate in the world that we live in today. The LSE's ties to the League of Nations helped to lay bare the increasingly capacious conceptualization of security in the period, that people were actually having to understand security in new ways in the wake of the First World War. It embraced a growing range of economic and social issues that connected national and international, in fact, local, national and international politics in ways that gave considerable agency to non-state actors. That's why that sort of the charities, the fact that it's a, a, you know, a local, national, international has that connection to 1922. And some of the power political consequences of this history are still with us. Let me signal two of them. Firstly, student and women activists who wanted to institutionalize global order in a way that advanced the needs of women and children. And they wanted to do that on the basis that this was a concern for global security. In 1920, they defined themselves as political actors. Yet they were predominantly cast as humanitarian notably by those wielding power. Quite a lot of the agency that I talk about in, in the sort of charitable, charitable campaigns were seen as political campaigns, but it's subsequently described, and actually there's a burgeoning history on the history of humanitarianism. And as a result, women, women's agency and student agency was often sidelined in mainstream political debates relating to global order shortly after 1921-22. They're very visible in that first moment inside the League of Nations, and then they sort of disappear. In contrast, the second group that feature in, in a, it also sort of um, a cameo role in my talk uh, that are drawn into the peacemaking process who present themselves as independent and apolitical uh, are bankers and economists and businessmen and yet their actions have deep implications for the global order that's brought into being. So these people don't regard themselves as political, decide in fact that they're actually absolutely not that, but the decisions and programs that they advance have enormous consequences for the stability of world capitalism as it's constituted in the 1920s in ways that bring it to a resounding crash after 1929. I also want to suggest that by looking at this early history of the LSE and this looking at the practical 
economic and social challenges facing a new world order in that moment helps us also to make sense of what some historians of the LSE identify as, a, as an apparent contradiction in the institution's contribution to public life. Often seen as left-leaning when it came to questions of social policy, and of course Beveridge is really the talisman here, the LSE also provided a home to leading figures of European liberalism. They included prominent economists associated with the Austrian School of Economics, notably, of course, Friedrich Hayek, who was so influential in the development of British post-war conservatism. So I always have this habit of forgetting my slides. So these are just a couple of images of where I hope to go. Uh, these are two of the charities I'm going to talk about a bit, Save the Children, uh, the Student Christian Movement, and then my favourite aid pro picture, which is all of these kids lined up with no boots and then very proudly wearing boots that look far too big for their feet. Um, and Austria and Vienna surface in different ways, um, along with this monetary mission. When the peacemakers in Paris agreed the covenant of the League of Nations, it signaled a momentous break with the 19th century notion that a balance of power would pacify the European continent and prevent its military domination by a single state or groups of states. After 1919, there was an attempt to establish procedural rules, laws of war and so on, on which stable and legitimate cooperation would depend. Power politics in, remained inherent to the work of the League in the same way power politics remain inherent to the work of the United Nations. But historians have largely ignored a step when they're writing about the League that contemporaries found completely radical. The Paris, by founding the League of Nations, the peacemakers in Paris multilateralized the practice of international relations at a stroke. If you compare the way that states get together in the Dreikaiserbund and these sort of multilateral formulations, it's just the big powers talking to one another and the smaller powers are not really part of this process. What the League does is it produces a world in conference. That was the way it was described in the 1920s. But it means that every single issue is now discussed in a multilateral frame. And a lot of historians who've work, who are working on the League actually, of course, spend a lot of time talking about how this multilateral arrangement is not open to everyone. India is a member of the League of nations, but it's a highly conditional uh, relationship. But nevertheless, in that first moment in 1920, it seemed incredibly radical. And I think this particular moment in time, it's, quite, it's worth reflecting on the history of multilateralism once again. Equally remarkably, Wilson's 14 points were also largely silent on the economic dimensions of the peace. Wilson doesn't really talk about economics at all. Only point three, which stresses free trade, the need to have free trade, that's it, basta. Yet within months of its founding, the League of Nations became profoundly preoccupied with how conflict had economic and social aspects. And the next little bit, I want to talk about why that was. The First World War turned the global economy into a potential weapon. National frontiers were expressed in strongly militarized terms, and states developed ever more sophisticated bureaucratic practices to control the movement of people and goods. Britain led this transformation, and it's a, a remarkable testimony of quite how much power Britain wielded in this moment. And it led this transformation by orchestrating the Allied blockade of the Central Powers. The blockade was a wholesale intervention into the practices of the global economy with 
profoundly lasting effects. The thing that everybody notices, of course, is that the British Navy imposed a blockade at sea. But the true power of the British imperial state was laid bare in the scale of British political bureaucratic and intelligence operations that were brought to bear to convince allied and neutral states to cease trading with the central powers worldwide. It's this blockade and it's this bureaucratic arrangements where they're also tracking where raw materials are, who's trading them, are there spikes in prices so Britain buys them up. It's an extraordinary Operation, And it's really this which makes the First World War a global conflict. And the British estimated by the end of the First World War, they were controlling more than 90% of the world shipping, and that means the goods in it. So it's an extraordinary thing. In November 1918, the armistice signaled the formal end of hostilities on the Western Front, but the fighting didn't stop. This is what the recent wave of centenary of First World War historians have been reminding us. Notably in Turkey and in Central and Eastern Europe, conflict related to the collapse of dynastic empires persisted well into the 1920s. Nor did the armistice bring an end to coercive economic tactics by the Allies. So we think peace dawned in November 1918, but it didn't. The Allied blockade of the territories of the former central powers continued deep into 1919. In fact, we still don't know quite where and when the blockade was wound up. So this is, if anybody's looking for this, might be quite a challenging project, but you know, it's looking at where and when the blockade ends. And trade embargoes also remained in place to stop British businesses from trading with territories that would become the Soviet Union. So the other complication is not only do you have a sort of continuation of uh, allied coercion in Central and Eastern Europe, you of course also have the Russian Civil War that starts to mix into this complicated picture. The blockade was integral to British diplomacy towards Germany before 1914 and central to its wartime strategy. The blockade and the practices necessitated by the emergence of a war economy had lasting effects on Britain's approach to world order. And I would suggest that they continue. The trade effects certainly last until the 1980s. So, but for my talk, what matters is firstly, that the legal and institutional innovations of the blockade brought British business into line with the state in the name of national defense. This had not happened before. And it extended the operations of the British government nationally and internationally. The introduction of the Trading with the Enemy Act in 1914 marked the effective abandonment of laissez-faire policies that were the touchstone of Liberal Party economics and of business and commerce orientated towards the British Empire, Europe and the wider world. The part of the struggle was to try and recover that and I'll talk a bit about that later. The second lasting effect of the blockade was the wide-ranging social and political consequences of the drive to mobilize national and imperial economic resources to prosecute total war. And the fear of total war, of course, is something that hang over, hung over the world in, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. But it also encouraged contemporaries to evaluate peacemaking in more creative ways. It's not just that you can wage total war. You could also start to think about total peace. 
And it led to a flowering of progressive ideas because the state now is an active agent in managing the economy and managing people. It led to a flowering of progressive ideas, many advanced by women and other groups who were traditionally disadvantaged in the established practices of interstate diplomacy. People were now asking new things of what the international system could deliver. These bodies included the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was set up in 1915 and which had national sections. You can read the archives of the national section here in the LSE. The Save the Children organization founded in 1919, as well as more established uh, groups. They weren't that well established, such as the Student Christian Movement and the World Student Christian Federation. This is really these kind of student movements are the beginnings of the modern student union that sort of coincides also with this moment of internationalism. The final major consequence for Britain's approach to world order related to the practice of British diplomacy. The prosecution of the war brought, brought new depth and breadth to British international relations. In particular, the multilateralism necessitated by the operations of the Allied blockade marked a graduated departure from traditional state-to-state -state diplomacy to include administrative relationships, administrative arrangements. So this is really the beginnings of it. It's the First World War that gives you the beginnings of modern international organizations and regional organizations that have bureaucratic structures within them. Over time, it produced, so this is what the First World War does, it produced a series of increasingly advanced and geographically extended inter-allied committees. And you can see here the way it folds in different belligerent powers at different points in the war, but also the arrival of the United States is really transformative in 1917 and 1918. And these committees in different ways are reconstituted inside the League. This shift towards interstate administration, which is something that we take for granted in the mid to late uh, 20th century and 21st century, had important consequences for Britain and the making of global order. When it comes to understanding emergent practice, the operations of the Allied Maritime Transport Council, the AMTC, is especially critical. The AMTC had power because it had the authority to give or withhold shipping space. So it sounds like a, it's a, actually an enormous thing when almost everything around the world is being transported by ship. In theory, national ministers were in charge of the shipping and the AMTC's authority. In reality, uh, an executive based in London ran it. There, the British civil servant Arthur Salter, working closely with the Frenchman Jean Monnet, who would go on to become the founding father of the European Union, ran this organization. So actually, Jean Monnet and Jean Monnet's ideas and interventions come from this moment, These, the insights that he learns here. And I'll talk a little bit more about that now. The two men, Salter and Monet, thereafter they were lifelong friends, commanded a, an enormous secretariat. It had 20 discrete inter-allied committees. And the officials who worked for these inter-allied committees were expected to divest themselves of any national point of view. So the kind of international mentality that we associate for good or ill with the European Union with these things after 1945, in fact, it's already there in 1917. 
And whilst the AMTC remained a body for intergovernmental debate and negotiation, the direct connection of national to international administration, and Salter and Monet both talk about this, this move into international administration meant it was easy to exchange information and implement a decision once reached. You had to be able to do that quickly. You were waging a war. So in short, the AMTC melded the distinction between the national and international level of decision-making, as well as between advisory and executive bodies. Those are the classic sort of ways that we think about international organizations. And this wartime experience had profound implications for international thought and practice. Salter summarized them in his 1921 influential monograph, Allied Shipping Control. It's a very snappy title. Uh, it set out an argument for intergovernmental cooperation that would prove foundational for the new academic discipline of international relations. So amongst the other anniversaries that are swilling around us is also the birth of international relations. Um, the ideas, you know, and, and, uh, and some of the key thinkers are kind of born in this moment of 1920s. What was novel at the time was Salter's stress on what he saw as the self-evident need for international administration. He characterized the essential administrative achievement as, and it's here on the slide, above all, the allied organization solved the problem of controlling the action without displacing the authority of national governments. I love that. Uh, controlling the action without displacing the authority. I think the European Commission probably couldn't put it better than that. Um, and the League of Nations immediately appointed both Salter and Monet to senior roles as their wartime experience became the blueprint for the League's great innovation in international administration. So theorists in IR, this kind of moment is, is quite well understood. Um, and, but Salter is interesting for IR theorists because they're really looking for the next step. Does Salter talk about subsidiarity? Um, and the answer is no. <laughs> but he is an important influence on David Mitrani, who is always credited as the father of functionalist thought in international relations and, of course, an LSE graduate. Political scientists tend to stress Salter and Mitrani's ties in the world of ideas. And what they do is they do the thing that you do in IR, is you compare their written texts. And they locate the genesis of Mitrani's promotion of, in his words, the functional integration of material activities on an international scale in the 1930s. So they think Mitrani is beginning to understand that if you want to manage international relations and promote peace, you have to think about who has resources and how to deal with the fact that the earth has uneven resources and uneven populations and different pressures. Uh, and that, that insight comes from what he sees in the Great Depression and his experience of the Second World War. And he's often seen as isolated in the 1920s um, from, inter from mainstream international thought. But I would contend that this underestimates Mitrani's engagement with the practice of international relations and his focus on what we would now call knowledge exchange. And for those of you that are involved in the preparations for the REF um, uh, at the end of this year, you'll all know all about knowledge exchange. So Mitrani was uh, a foreign affairs guard, uh, editor for the Manchester Guardian. He wrote reports of the League of Nations. He was an active promoter of the League of Nations. And he also edited, um, alongside a kind of distinguished board, um, the Carnegie Endowment's Economic and Social History of the War. So that's a kind of 
I mean, that's just a sort of snippet on the slide here. What you see is the pages and pages of editors and editorials board. I included this one because, in fact, Sir William Beveridge is the chairman of the entire editorial board of the Carnegie Economic and Social History of the First World War. It's a major text. It is the major text on the economic and social consequences of the war and the prosecution of the war. And it has an enormous international board. Keynes is on the British board. Mitrani is there as an advisor on Romania. But it's not that these people are just talking about what happened in the war and its aftermath in an abstract way. They're also engaged in a practical project about building a new international order. Mitrani's correspondence held here in the archives of the LSE underline his importance as a source of intelligence, as in information, and practical guidance on what was happening on the ground in Central and Eastern Europe in ways that would shape the operations of the League of Nations after 1919. So what's happening in Central and Eastern Europe is especially critical to the way that the League of Nations and the international order starts to evolve between 1919 and 1924-25. The region is hit with a groundswell of political violence and economic turbulence. With the Russian Empire also in revolt, political and ethnic violence would continue until about 1924 and kill another 4.1 million Europeans in the process. So this period that we tend to think about Europe becoming peaceful, actually, it, there's an awful lot of political violence. There's hyperinflations in different places and so on. And before I want to go on before I go on to look at how the warlike circumstances of the peace force economic and social issues onto the international agenda, let me first offer an, an outline of how it stood in 1920. Back then, it was really hard to grasp at first how far the war had changed relations between states, markets, and peoples nationally, and to appreciate the consequences of those changes for international relations. Armistice in 1918 had come as a surprise. The United States' failure to ratify the Versailles Peace Treaty and with it a body of law that was subsequently incorporated into the League of Nations made Britain the predominant power in the League. So another kind of sub-theme of my lecture is quite how important the League was for Britain and Britain was for the League. British leaders in 1918 you know, well, still in 1918, had intended to use the League to sustain Anglo-American relations, that partnership that you saw emerging on the earlier slide between 1915, where the Americans start to bankroll Britain to some of the convoy aid to active intervention after 1917. Britain was looking forward to a kind of Atlantic partnership, but with the United States then refusing to join the League and rejecting uh, the Treaty of Versailles, Britain was left holding <laughs> the global order in some ways. Um, and so Britain, and Britain was certainly the dominant power inside the League of Nations, which developed quite a sophisticated way of calculating who was powerful and therefore who got how much representation inside this, inside this new international organization. And Britain began to regard the League of Nations as a multilateral hub to manage its relations with Europe and with the empire. And historians tend to think about these two things as separate. But in fact, the League provided the opportunity for Britain to manage 
relations and try and facilitate peace in Europe and also to think about the development of policies with the dominion powers which were now emerging as new states with new powers in their own rights. It's a highly conditional, racially organized system, but nevertheless, the dominions had more authority and independence after the First World War than they had before. Here it is. So this is a kind of schema of the different bits of the League of Nations. Um, it's got a pointy thing. Uh, by 1931. So the, the classic bits that everybody usually knows about is the Assembly and the Council, which is not, in, not, it's similar to the UN, but different. That's the Permanent Secretariat. And then underneath it are all of these different technical organizations. Um, I want to talk a bit about those next. Crucially, the League of Nations also helped anchor France. France had the ability, and indeed does, go rogue. <laughs> French you know, still does it a bit now. But France, France invaded the Ruhr in 1922, which is what triggered the German hyperinflation crisis. So the League of Nations provides a way for Britain of reassuring France. And France had authority and representation that was only second to Britain inside the League of Nations. And France has evolved... France's uh, attitude towards Britain also evolved between 1919 and 25. French expectations progressed from thinking about Britain just as a military ally to uh, the joint guarantor of a Europe-wide system of interlocking arbitration and assistant pacts. And there were a whole raft of important initiatives and um, uh, and agreements, um, including the Geneva Protocol of 1925 that outlawed chemical and biological weapons. And it's the most, that protocol is the most used international protocol when it comes to the laws of war, still, I think. Um, so this was no heady idealism. The League of Nations is always presented as a kind of, you know, liberal, wishy-washy, failing project. This was not about that. It was about trying to effect practical measures uh, and use international law to try and make society and, and waging war um, more civilised. Um, so they, you know, it's no, the League of Nations, if many of the plans were unsuccessful when judged from the perspective of the Second World War and its aftermath, there were still standards and norms that were institutionalized that gave practical effect to European security. It's also that what's interesting about the 1920s is the way that this kind of internationalism, signing Britain up to the League of Nations, Britain using this new organization, was also a way for leading political figures, Robert Cecil, Austin Chamberlain, Anthony Eden to make a, a reputation and a name for themselves in British politics. So it's something very distinctive about this period where actually being a big presence on the international stage counted for something at home. Other figures in Britain might have been more sceptical, like Leo Amory. They didn't, you know, they didn't hold with this kind of liberalist, uh, the rights features of the League of Nations. But he, too, recognised that the League also provided an opportunity to facilitate British imperialism. In 1920, the British Empire had reached its greatest extent, and that was because the League of Nations created a mandatory regime which gave Britain authority over new territories like Palestine, Transjordan, and Iraq. And at the same time, British dominions also became sovereign members of the League, and some of them became mandatory powers themselves. So New Zealand and Australia 
also had mandatory territories that they now governed over. So it was a kind of expansion of the imperialist project. But as importantly, the warlike character of the immediate post-war years established new capacities in the League of Nations on health, refugees, transportation, and communication. None of this stuff was planned in 1919. That's what I want to talk about next. So you see these organizations here, the Health Organization, uh, the Health Committee, the Committee for the Protection of Young People, uh, Young Persons and Children, um, uh, the Economic and Financial Organization. All of this is new. None of this is planned. How does that happen? This is because, really, the, the League intervention in material issues which began to dominate its agenda um, were established by what becomes known as the Monet Method in the history of the European Union. International institutions are not just built solely by positive choice, it's not just that you agree to have this thing, but also through negative processes. Left-leaning political actors who were excluded from these institutions recognized the dangers that this posed to their own ambitions. So people on the political left, communists, radical socialists, didn't like the League worrying about the rights of children or thinking about economic and social questions. That's what they were trying to do uh, in the international. Uh, and here we have Max Speer, another graduate from the LSE, uh, a Galician-born journalist and Marxist historian, one of the key historians of the early British labor movement, produces vast amounts of work. Um, and as he put it, hampered by vested interests, get to those, but inspired by the desire to extend its own narrow foundations easily if artificially. The League now stretches its covetous hands after these problems. William Beveridge's papers help us see this process at work on the ground. In December 1918, as part of his final duties for the food ministry, so this is the sort of just as he's about to leave the British government, he agreed to serve as the British member of an inter-allied mission of relief to German Austria. At this point, German Austria is called German Austria, it then becomes Austria. Uh, there, food was in desperately short supply, disease, notably TB and influenza. We know, know much more about the Spanish flu, but at the time, people were enormously worried about bacterial TB. Um, because they had no antibiotics. Uh, the transport networks were in chaos, and millions of people were displaced. People were on the move all over the place, bound, barriers, uh, borders were being redrawn. And Vienna and Austria were in the middle of this storm in the heart of Central Europe. They were still being blockaded by the Allies and now also by some of the successor states of its former empire. So Austria is now being blockaded by Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, states that are born out of the former territories of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they have <laughs> two lots of trouble, a blockade from the Allies and now blockade from, their, from the former friendly powers. Beveridge writes a report, it's available in the, in fact it's available online, this is available online so you can read the PDF, um, uh, writes a report on what the Austrians call hunger crisis gripping their territory. It's one of the very first reports, in fact I think he's the first one that I found that writes about what's happening. Um, and, and you can see the text here, hopefully you can read it. Um, 
He writes here, after meeting representatives of the new Austrian state in Vienna on Christmas Eve, which of course is the main Christmas day uh, in, in the British tradition, he recorded, I am ashamed before them as I used to be going to interview beggars at the door at Toynbee, which is a reference to Toynbee Hall, uh, which was an East London settlement that he had been warden of before the First World War. For beggars they are, sans food, sans money, sans country, sans everything. Vienna, the central capital of an empire, is left as the impossible two and a quarter incubus of a republic of eight million all told, which it cannot support. Eight million is probably a bit of an exaggeration about the size of Austria's population, but definitely the city had over two and a quarter million people in it. Um, and this is a very common theme that then gets picked up in lots of different ways, that Austria is a kind of uh, emaciated body with a massive head. Um, it's the sort of, I think, probably the stuff of imperial nightmares, really, that you're left with this massive capital and then no means to sustain it. And he's one of the very first to characterize a crisis that would capture the imagination, uh, the international imagination, with, um, with the flames of hyperinflation licking at the foundations of the Austrian state, images of hungry children are mobilized by women activists who mount a campaign to shock the British public into demanding the end of the blockade. So these are also from the archives here. These are the campaign posters uh, for the Save the Children Fund. Um, showing children who are very badly deformed by rickets, which is caused by um, uh, a vitamin D deficiency and, and basically malnourishment. So th this is also the period, as we'll see, where scientists are really only beginning to understand what these problems are and what they're caused by. Um, uh, and the Austrian hunger crisis inspired Eglantine Jeb and her sister Dorothy Buxton to found the Save the Children Fund. They were both still students at the time. Uh, and the Viennese hunger crisis is the first focus of their campaign. And the letters and flyers are also here in the LSE archives. The main Save the Children Fund is in, um, archive is in, in Birmingham. Revealingly, Beveridge too, and he must have been given these, had what he called grim photographs. These are also in his archive. And this, actually, I think this child is probably quite old and I'm trying to keep him on the screen too long, but you can see the body's really um, deformed by rickets. This picture isn't so good. I had several goes at trying to get this to look better. Really what it shows are four children here on the floor sleeping under a duvet and one in a bed in actually what's a really nice fancyclip sort of apartment if you look up here if any of you have Airbnb'd in Vienna this is the kind of thing people like to stay in because it's kind of classic big old Viennese building um, they've got no beds they've got very few clothes because they've had to burn the beds for firewood there's just there's no heat there's no coal so people are living in really desperate conditions um, and what happens is this 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 horror and this spectacle um, organizes, forces students, well, encourages students to mobilize. So British students and staff, including those here at the LSE, mobilized a European relief committee. Uh, and their first campaign was to provide aid to Vienna. Well, and they had the first initiative was a breakfast in Vienna scheme, which offered a warm English-style breakfast to students. I think it's also kind of something quite studenty about thinking what people need there is a nice, good English breakfast, and we're going we're to provide it. But it moves on. Um, so what you can see here 
here is the clothing and financial support. So these materials are actually from the archives in the University of Vienna, which has very good records of what they were given. And you see here, um, this is an international committee for the universities of Austria. So the universities of Austria then cooperate with a host of British universities. And you can see there's also an academic exchange that builds following on from this. Um, but they also provide, this photograph shows, mounds of clothing and to the university, good tweed cloth so that you can look respectable as a junior don um, in the university. And there are then long lists of distinguished professors who, and that's what this thing here is, uh, of people who were given clothing aid. Um, and there are some distinguished names on that. They, often they sent their wives to come and get the clothing. <laughs> they didn't come themselves. So aid efforts from Vienna spread out across Central Europe and led many of the actors involved to Geneva. So all the people who were working on the ground in this moment, they sort of just almost rush on trains. So they also travel then from Vienna to Budapest. Uh, they go on uh, into Poland. Some of them actually end up in Russia, um, aiding uh, the people there. Jeb and Buxton campaigned for women and children's rights in this context, but then they go and do exactly the same thing in the League of Nations. Harriet Chick is a biologist who I've done quite a lot of work on. She then becomes a pioneering uh, campaigner for better nutrition for families and for people inside Geneva. Um, but some of this work might be cast as humanitarian, but as the Save the Children Fund put it in 1920, our work is constructive as well as palliative. Austria did not need charity, it needs good economics. And so this leads me to the last sort of theme of my talk, which is the way that this demand, this charity agency and this demand by this humanitarian activist confronted the British government's general view in 1920 that market forces and not state intervention would heal war-battered economies. Uh, and petitioning the League and pushing at the League, these groups also indicate another impulse of internationalism in this moment, which is to challenge and, and also sometimes limit state power. And so it meant really a talk, a shift in talk away from government cooperating, also to think about global governance, about rules and norms that the League needs to institute and promote in order to um, effect a better world. And here I want to underline how a rules-based approach to global markets also becomes part of this story in ways that had major political ramifications. So capitalism ordered around the gold standard and free trade were Britain's tools of choice. And these instruments conform to the League's promise of a rules-based international order, even if they're not always associated with it. So the first thing that happens is Austria is also, at the same time as it's having this hunger crisis, it also has a financial crisis, is that this invites the League of Nations into the field of financial cooperation, and it prompts Montague Norman, who's not normally associated with this story, this is the kind of, he becomes governor of the Bank of England, uh, a post he holds for 26 years, also in 1920, <laughs> and he and others around him, economists also associated with the LSE, are central to getting the League of Nations to promote an international goal standard. 
and getting the public to understand that you know, establishing public finances on a sound basis is the preliminary basis uh, to the execution of social demands, which, you know, social reforms which the world demands. So you need to stabilize capitalism before you can think about longer standing programs of aid to women and children. So this is also a shift in, in the way that um, global order operates. And the Austrian crisis in 1920-21 was the foundation stone of this approach where the League took a coordinating role. So the League of Nations establishes a practice of oversight. So first you have the humanitarians go in and provide food, coal, clothing, boots to the poor and hungry of Vienna and Austria. But it's followed in 1921 by a League of Nations International Commission which is, seeks to stabilize the currency. And the League of Nations promotes a loan scheme, which is sort of bank rolled by bankers in the United States to stabilize Austria. So Austria, for those of you that have studied the international capitalism in the 20th century in this particular moment, Austria is the first country to stabilize its currency in the wake of the First World War and the first to go back on the gold standard. Britain doesn't return to the gold standard for another five years. And Austria, uh, in order to effect this, Austria has to live by a set of rules that the League of Nations establishes and monitors. So the Austrian state has to cut its spending, it has to stack civil, sack civil servants, um, it has to cut um, subsidies to food. And this is a pioneering program of international oversight, which then is incorporated, is taken up by the IMF after 1945. It's the kind of, it's the classic case. And many of the Austrian economists who were associated with the LSE were also part of this project. So it's a kind of, you know, this is really where the LSE's connection to some of these ideas comes from. Trade policy was another plank of Britain's efforts. So there's the money side, and then there's the trade side. Uh, and it was another plank of Britain's efforts to bring order to Europe and to the empire. And British self-interest and identity found its clearest expression in the realm of trade policy, which was branded as one of free trade. And this established a dichotomy between free trading Britain and protectionist Europe, which lives to this day. I just want to go over this just very quickly, because it also has something to do with Austria and um, the LSE. So the, the central clause, the central requirement of Article uh, Wilson's third point and Article 23E of the Treaty of Saint-Germain with Austria, it's also there with Germany, is this very vague principle to secure equitable treatment for the commerce of all members of the League of Nations. It produces the most favored nations clause. It's the sort of, so Britain codifies, writes the most flavored nations clause into international law. But it's actually quite vague. And the reason it's quite vague is because Britain at this point is also becoming under increasing pressure from the Dominion powers to adopt imperial preference, to give special trading arrangements to the new Dominion states. It doesn't do it until 1931, but it's actually under pressure to do that before. But at the same time as sort of on the one hand saying we're free trading in a very vague way and retaining legal freedom to develop imperial preference, which it introduces in 1931. It also strips Austria and Germany of any trade ability to protect themselves. So it's saying, we're going to be free trading, sort of. You must be really free trading. 
And that leaves Germany, Austria and Germany in an extremely exposed place as the Austrian Association for Economics appealed to the League. All of the economic restrictions are in favour of the victors and against Austria so that having nothing to offer, we can make no arrangements. So you can only make trading deals if you've got something to bargain with, and they had nothing to bargain with. One of the most trenchant critics of this, and I'm coming to my conclusion now, was a man called Moritz Bonn, who was brought to the LSE through the Academic Assistance Committee in 1933 by Beveridge. Bonn is a German liberal who uh, actually was quite keen on, <laughs> on free trade, but was well aware of the contradictions of Britain's position, as he puts it there. Britain makes the case for imperial preference on the basis that it has historic ties to its empire. That's what this is. And as you can see, he says, well, actually, Germany's connections to Austria are as, as deep, if not deeper, than yours. And this moment of Britain adopting imperial preference is also the point at which Britain's efforts to stabilize Europe and manage its empire unravel in the, the problems and challenges of the Great Depression and which set Europe and empire on a different path that have longer term consequences for Britain's relations with both of them. I don't have time to go into any of that, and there's lots of books in the LSE library that you can go and read about it. I just want to have, uh, end with two concluding reflections. The first one is that um, Bond's move to the LSE and the work of the Academic Assistance Council um, highlights the continued engagements of the staff and the students of their LSE, of the LSE throughout the 1930s to the commitment to the practice as well as the ideals of internationalism. Up here there are, this is a speech that Beveridge gives here in 1935, raising money for the Academic Assistance Council, which is about bringing refugees, academics, refugees, not just out of Germany, also out of Portugal. He, he lists a number of cases out of Italy where they're in difficulties. Uh, and he makes that case in relation to the values that the League of Nations embodies. So though we think the League is failing as a project, the values that it uh, underlines are still really important to him. And he also continues to write and work for the League of Nations. So in fact, he writes a report on the right-hand side. That's a report from his archives, which underlines the importance of this work, of bringing out mostly Jewish academics by the end of, of the 1930s. That's really where the, the focus is. Um, to the, it's important to this institution and it's important to the student bodies and it's important to higher education in Britain. I'll just leave that up there. We can come to it in questions if you're interested in it. And my second reflection really relates to Britain and the making of global order. That although Britain was much less engaged with the League of Nations after 1933, it continued to support the organization practically, financially, and politically until successor institutions were in place in 1945. And these new global institutions, notably the IMF, the GATT, um, the World Bank, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, I could, the World Health Organization, I could go on, uh, instituted British-made norms, some of the laws I've touched on. Those are British-made laws that go into those international organizations, though Britain doesn't really have any historical memory of that. Um, and Britain recognized then 
uh, and hopefully does now, that without international institutions and legal norms, however flawed they may be, the world's most powerful states and economic actors operate unchecked. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, thank you very much, Patricia. That's an absolutely fascinating lecture that brings together, you know, local activists, uh, larger international institutions, and world order, themes of world order. Now, lots of different questions that really could be asked. I mean, maybe um, I'll kick us off, really, and maybe while you're formulating your own questions. But one of the things that just strikes me is that who is actually paying for this new structure of um, international organization at the kind of the level that you're talking about, the, these councils and secretariats and groups. I mean, who's actually paying for it? What's the, what's the, the member states pay for it, and they develop uh, quite a complicated mechanism. To, in fact, it's still used now, the kind of core mechanism, to based on... A, it's not GDP at this point, because I don't have an understanding of what GDP is, but on the kind of economic capacity of each state. Uh, and so that, that's how they, they worked that out, I think, already in 1919, because the, the League is actually founded sort of in London, um, somewhere in Bloomsbury. It has kind of, I mean, Salter and Monet are in these offices, and then they move first to Paris, but then really Geneva. Uh, so it's based on your, on your economic capacity. It becomes complicated um, because states tend to exaggerate that. <laughs> and in the Russian case... You know, Russia had this enormous capacity. So Russia joined the League of Nations in 1934, um, and it presented the League with a challenge because they thought, well, if we if we let them in on what they say their productive capacity is, they'll be the biggest member. So they also then get entitlement to you know run this commission and do this and do that. And also they knew where you know the the kind of Many of these people had, well, some of them, they were not friends of this version of, 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 of socialism. So they were also very conscious of the kind of blood and suffering that the Russian people were having to endure. So, but that's how they do it. So everybody, really, it's the same basis of contributions to the European Union. It's exactly, that's a lot of these mechanisms and how much you might get paid as a civil servant, the double taxation thing of working in Geneva but coming back to London. All of those sorts of things are all worked out by the League. Okay, we have questions from the audience. Questions? Any comments? Yeah. And we have a, a microphone, yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could say something about the contrast between Britain and America. Mm. So Britain is, I presume, one of the, the two big powers in the world, mm. Britain and America, although a bit damaged from the First World War. So Britain leading the League of Nations mm. and America opting out. I find that fascinating because on one level you'd think um, if, you're, if you're a big power, you don't want multilateralism because you can bully your way around the world. Yeah. So I don't know, something about why Britain chose to lead a multilateral approach and America deciding to opt out. And, and it resonates today, I think. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, that's partly, that's, you know, that's one of the difficulties is for me when I write this, this sort of talk, I want to chuck a lot of stuff <laughs> because it's, it's so, there's all sorts of resonances now. 
the, the position of the United States is very interesting and revealing. You're right, because it partly there are different competing groups in the United States. So there are some that think actually we could possibly chuck our weight around more uh, if we're not a member. And especially, of course, they want to chuck their weight around in Central and South America. So that's really what the, the argument is about in 1919. It's actually that they're worried about the implications of international oversight for what they do in their hemisphere. It's presented as we don't want to be drawn into Europe, but actually that's not the argument, really. Um, but there are Americans who are really strongly committed to the League of Nations, and there are quite a few that work for it uh, in advisory or expert capacity. So about three to 400 Americans actually work for the League of Nations during the course of its history. So, and they're still campaigning for this moment when America didn't join. And they, I think they think when Herbert Hoover's elected that actually this is their big moment because Hoover runs the big, at a state level, the relief operation I talked about, the real difference comes from American food aid. Um, but, you know, Hoover's a bit nervous of that. Um, and I think you're so there's a kind of competing sides in the in the United States, um, and they're, they're, they're skeptical about. Uh, well, the Republicans are certainly skeptical of, of Wilson's stress on law, on international law, and on making this law accountable in any way. But you're, the other part of what you say is, is equally revealing. You're right about Britain promoting this multilateralism, and it's something that. It's only when I was talking about this last year or thinking about it that it really struck me as remarkable. Uh, and I think it is because they know their power is waning in some senses. You know, they know the United States is there, so they want to bind America to them. Uh, and, and this is a way of controlling them and controlling France. And, and also what your power is is fluctuating. I think that's the other element in this, that they're very aware as a result of the First World War about the question around resources, around food, but also around you know, coal, uh, the coming question of oil, which is becoming, you know, they already know that that's where things are going to go. And so Britain is disadvantaged because its resource base actually is global. It draws its stuff in from its empire, but it needs to be able to control those shipping lines. And so the, the League and that kind of multilateralism works for them. Um, sort of, but they can't quite manage Europe and the empire, so they have to make a choice. Yeah. Interesting comparison with Bretton Woods as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, exactly, and also the way that in this organisation you've got the League is interesting because it's everything in one pot. It's not just that it's multilateral, it's also that it works across all these issues, whereas what you get after 1945 is a separation of money that goes into the IMF and the World Bank in some sense is the development end of it. Um, but uh, the hard security stuff is with the UN and the Security Council. Food goes to the UNF, uh, to FAO. And, and that means that actually it's quite hard to bring these issues back together <laughs> in a way that you know, the UN doesn't get credit for some of the things. It's never thought of as, um, the IMF is never thought of as a UN organization. Mm for example, you know, so it's also that and the willingness of the United States in some sense is to commit itself to some economic and social questions, but not to norms of war, mm. for example. Um, well, especially as, you, as your presentation made very clear in 1919, the link between, you know, food and the need for, you know, the need for those kind of basic subsistence um, levels of, um, of existence was, was a connection, there's a connection there with the causes of conflict and war. Yeah. 
And yeah. so there's a disconnect in the organisational setup. Yeah, that's right. And it's, that's right. That's right. And I think it's also the other echo then, which you sort of lose after 1945, is that they're very aware that the world has finite resources, you know, because they've just lived through four years of everybody really struggling with it getting harder and harder to have resources. And what you see then is a, dis a discussion around where you can grow stuff and what you can't grow and the limits of growth. And you don't get that again until the 60s or 70s. And the difference with the vision in 1945 is, well, it doesn't matter if, you know, if the world isn't equal because we, we can all just grow our way out of it. Uh, that's not there in this period, and it's not there now, I would say. Um, David, you want to... Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, yeah, for this um, superb multifaceted talk. Um, I have a very simple question, I guess. Um, why, why the LSE? I mean, what's, what makes us special? Or are you trying to please the audience? And in <laughs> reality, there were also many Oxbridge people and, and uh, other major figures uh, involved in, the, in this architecture. Um, and if not, um, what, was the LSE particularly international? Was it a specific social milieu? Um, that it attracted, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, why the LSE? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And I mean, I don't, I, mean, I suspect there might be people in the audience who have more of a sense of that than I do. But I was just, I just, it's a bit like the Austria thing, actually. I sort of, my research began, I began by looking at the league. So most people, you know, from my generation, you look at the states. And I really worked from the league archives back out. And so you start to see things that aren't visible going the other way. And so one of them was this Austrian founding moment to me, I, you know, because I was like, why are all these Austrian economists all over the place? And, and, you know, how do they end up here? And so suddenly, you know, because it's this little place, it's not Germany. Um, and the LSE is a bit like that. So you see lots of people who are associated with it, um, and in particular beverage, I have to say. But, but other, you know, the more I, I could, the more I looked, the more I found. Um, and I think it's because it's, well, it's linked more directly to the founding of the League in a couple of ways. One is, is this sort of economic and social question and the way that, inter and it linking to international relations. So this moment of trying to understand properly, scientifically, how states operate. And so it's a kind of, it's a moment in social science, I suppose. Uh, and in IR, ironically, there's always this discussion about realism and idealism. But when you look at the people who are doing all the writing and thinking, they're all involved in the practical operation of international relations on either side. And so, and, and the League figures, uh, the LSE figures prominently in that because the League is searching for expertise where it can find it. And the LSE is also building in a way that, you know, Cambridge and Oxford aren't really, because they don't, we're not very good at that. Uh, so they, this, what Beveridge does is quite canny, gets all this money from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I've been thinking a bit, a bit more about this because he, because I suddenly thought, oh wait, there's the economic and social history. So it's partly he builds this big Carnegie project. Carnegie give 
him money for the library. They give the League money for the library, more or less at exactly the same time. Uh, and the Carnegie Endowment fund an awful lot of the work and the new chairs and everything that happens here till he falls out with them later on. Uh, and so I think there's, you know, this is, and so people work on philanthropy in Carnegie and they don't see it as connected to the LSE, or as I suspect, there's actually, if you looked at it, there would be a lot more also in the way that, you know, this is quite a small bunch of people in a way that I'm talking about. I think it's one of the things that's quite surprising is, it's a sort of, not a circuit exactly, but everybody seems to know one another. And if you look at his, well, I've got this man, Mitrani, you know, he knows about this. Because there's also only a few people that really have core bits of expertise. And so you also see people like Beveridge are sort of gatekeepers for people's careers. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a variety of things going on and where the LSE is. And then there's, a, I mean, there's also a kind of deeper personal connection I suspect that he used, which is that his family are from Fife. Uh, I think even from Dunfermline and Carnegie was from Dunfermline. So I think he's, he's quite an operator beverage. But I think it's not just him. There's, there are kind of core professors in different departments who are part of this. And there's a, a scheme of international summer schools, liberal summer schools, that's partly thinking about peacemaking project. Beverage usually leads those. They go to Geneva, they go to Vienna. So I think it's it's partly down to him, even though he's not a very popular director. I think that's because he's he's a kind of he's a sort of man who likes to get out there and do stuff, mm. you know. Rather than sitting committees here, yeah. probably. <laughs> uh, Dina, yeah. Really fascinating. Um, and I have a question that might come across as more of a provocation than it is. So my question is, to what extent is the League, um, in some respects, a kind of imaginary construct? I mean, what, what you've shown is that there was so much of, um, um, so mu so much of the activism rested on personal connections, um, the personal networks of very specific individuals in very specific locations. Yeah. Um, and then sort of next to that is the League with its kind of high ideals, the very stylized building and everything. There seems to be a kind of separation between these two. I mean, in your experience so far, working with, on the one hand, with the League archives and then with sort of grassroots, I suppose, mm. organizations. Have you, I mean, have you thought about this uh, aspect of the... So, yeah, no, I have. I have. Because, yeah, because it's, well, I think what's odd about it is the way that, and I think that the beverage speeches go to that because when you look at when he's making he goes to Birmingham and he goes around the country raising money for the Academic Assistance Council and he doesn't now you would probably show pictures of certain academic you do something that was sort of focused on people some way his is all about the ideals of of internationalism and solidarity and and expertise which is what the league embodies really that's also this kind of moment for the LSE it's that experts confidence in experts and technocracy um, and and people don't let go of it so they remain extraordinarily committed to this vision so that I think is the imaginary solidarity but even if the league can't really do anything about Ethiopia and it can't do anything about Japan and it can't do anything about Germany people people who are committed to it don't seem to lose faith with it um, and they, and they also make reference to its laws and its standards. So I think there is something 
that is an imaginary thing. I, and I think it's also interesting for me, I, it feels generational. Um, so you see the same people then go on to work in these different organizations in the EUN or in the EEC, and they're, they, but they're also young. So I think the, it's also a young imaginary. And I think it partly comes out of, you can see it with one of the student activists, a man called Donald Grant, who's another Scotsman, who basically is he's a conscientious objector. He's released from Leavenworth Prison, and he basically sees news about these starving children. He gets on a train, and he ends up in, in Vienna. Um, and, and it's a sort of, it's actually, he wants to prove himself worthy because he was a conscientious objector. So I think there's also an energy to want to do something if you were not the generation that fought, whether you're a pacifist or not. I think it's, there's something in all of that. And it, people have written more about how the League is also connected to the imaginary of empire. Um, but I think that sometimes it, it sort of ignores kind of the racial politics of Europe, which are also there in this moment. I haven't talked about them. Um, but I think the other thing about the League imaginary is that for people who work on its archives, in fact, we don't have one League. <laughs> we have loads of them. You know, that's all oh, your League. That's very different. So the Disarmament Commission is completely different. To, so that is, the, that is, and I think that's something to do with also the way that these international organizations still seem to have some sort of traction. I mean, the UN does, even though, you know, it's quite difficult to fathom, but there's still, you know, associations of, uh, of you know, the UN associations. I think it's still called that, as there was a League of Nations Union, you know. So mm -hmm. I think there is a kind of, um, around the buildings, around some of the artworks, there's loads and loads of songs, loads of anthems and things that people, you know, songs that they composed. So there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of materiality to the League archive as well. I mean, I haven't worked on it, but I know that it's all there. Yeah, so it's definitely also part of it. Um, but I went for the really technical stuff, <laughs> you know, when I studied it. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's something about this organised. And I think it's more surprising because it's, the failures are so striking, really. Yeah, thank uh, you. Question from Taylor at the back. Yeah. Hi, thank you. I enjoyed that talk um, a great deal. Uh, I was struck by your emphasis not just on the British contribution to the League, but the Britishness of the League. Mm. And um, so I have another provocative question. Uh, wouldn't the French tell a different story? And if you had to tell their story, would it begin with Jean Monnet? And would it obviously wouldn't necessarily be in the technical side of the shipping, but where would the French story take you? Yeah, yeah no, you're right. Uh, and... Um, the French story would be more one of marked contrasts, really. So the French actually wanted uh, that kind of taking the story into the First World War. The French were actually also hoping for a much deeper collaboration with the British, uh, and they wanted it. And in fact, there was this Paris Economic Pact of 1916, which was set around a much more integrated Anglo-French model. Uh, and so the French always actually felt sort of rather resentful of the British in some way that they didn't go along with that. They went with the Americans and more of a free trade type of thing. Uh, and then that, uh, they then had to, you know, reconnect to France after the Americans had gone. Uh, and the French, of course, are also then abandoned not just the British that are abandoned by the Americans, the French are too. The French are quite good at 
um, they're more present in other committees. So it's also interesting that the version of capitalism, you're right, is a British version where they're more active are on some of the social questions. And of course, the French always talk about Albert Thomas running um, the uh, International Board of Trade, that this is a kind of, that France stands for workers' rights and the right to work, and this is a kind of French project. I'm not so sure about that. Um, but the French do use the League in the same way that the British do to try and effect sort of, you know, the grinding work of diplomacy, actually. And where it's really important for them is the way that, and for Britain too, the way that they build networks with the Netherlands, with Belgium, with Sweden, with Norway, all of that sort of stuff is really important. And there are connections that last a long time. And they also use the League, like the British do, to sometimes try and float uh, difficult projects or ideas to have a kind of the, hand the authority to the league. So the, where I have seen this is in relation to the, and I think there might be some more examples, but in 1935-36 with the Popular Front, France is thinking about devaluing its currency. And it actually starts talking about that inside the league and it wants the League to sort of criticise France and help them find a way because that will make the League unpopular rather than the government unpopular. So you see that behind the closed doors. But of course the tragedy for France is that after the first Secretary-General of, of the League is a Britain man named Eric Drummond. And so the Britishness is also in the way that the League operates. It's really like a foreign office operation in the way that it's constructed. And then um, Joseph Avenol, who's the number two, so the Assistant Secretary-General takes over. Avenol is a much more divisive figure, actually, um, but it, it's the turn of the French. <laughs> so, and, I, you know, there are other Frenchmen everybody would have preferred, but Avenol has been there. And Avenol becomes in his, I mean, he's a difficult person to get, to have a sense of, but actually becomes closer and closer to the sort of nationalist uh, nationalist populist agenda in France uh, attempts to reorganize the League, starts to sack staff, lots of staff in the Secretariat, and actually is trying to weed out people who are pro-British, anti-Germany, anti anti so actually he's pursuing a political agenda which isn't really representative of France, but it becomes representative of Vichy. And when France falls, this is then a critical moment for, um, for the League and for Avenal because the, the League and the Swiss government are concerned that, that Germany will invade Switzerland in order to take over the League to launch its, to use its headquarters as a, the basis for a new international fascist organization. And there are sort of, there are bits of plans that you can find in the German archives about that. Madeleine Heron has written about that. And Avenol is trying to basically either shut the league down or to move it to Vichy. And so this really, the question of whether, and so it's also a vision of what your neutrality should be in the war is should it be that the League of Nations should not take sides, uh, you know, should it not stand with Britain and, and the democracies uh, in order to be neutral with regard to, to Germany? And, so, and Avenal wants that kind of line. So for France, it's, it's a really, that's a really difficult history. And it's interesting that it's British scholars who've written about 
Avenal and not the French. They sort of stop um, with Thomas. <laughs> All of the recent work is about Thomas, but it's also this, this moment. And just it's this, your question sort of connects to this document here, which is from the Hoover archives, but it contains within it. So this is a list of, uh, that was prepared by the German government uh, in preparation for the invasion of Britain. And it has on it lists of people who they would arrest, where they are and who they would arrest. And what's really striking about it, and I only found it because I was searching for various names, is that they've also got people's home addresses, so it's a bit of a shocker. But it's kind of British figures in the government, and then actually it's either people who've been rescued by the Academic Assistance Council or people who are very strongly associated with the League of Nations. So it's this sort of... So I think the French um, story also is also connected to the direction of French politics as it twists and turns in the 1930s particularly. It would be, it, you know, as a kind of broad categorization, the French story would be more like the British in the 20s, and actually they cooperate quite well together. But what really makes life difficult for France is then this, this, the way that Britain responds to the impact of the Great Depression, and it turns towards its empire. And so it leaves France also feeling insecure about quite... How, how far and how well Britain will stand next to France. That's a great question. Thank you. I can see Violet Bonham Carter on that list yeah, as yeah, well. It's yeah, yeah. No, you, you, I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary document. Um, I was going to actually just ask to step back a bit. I mean, because you, you've worked on the League for quite some time now, and <laughs> Susan Pedersen, of course, is, is, yeah. has done that work as well. Why was it that you both, in a sense fastened on to the League at that time. Is there, is there, was, was there a moment for the League? No, any, I will. Any explanation for why that should happen? Yeah, no, I think it probably... No, we both had the same... Mm. So we both spoke to OUP at the same time about doing mm. books on the League, and, and the OUP went, oh, no, oh, no, that's... No, no, no. And then they said, and then this... Do you know Susan Peterson? <laughs> so, so, no, I think, I think it, in my case, mm. it, it had two connections. One was that I was asked to write something about money doctors, about financial advisors and so I knew the league had done this sort of work because that story you know the stabilization of Austria is part of that and I had if you work on the international economy that the the major source for you in fact really the only usable source on a global level are the statistics generated by the League of Nations also for population figures they have figures for everything and they used to be in the basement of the LSE archive and you, I should say they're all in green and I used to so I used them for my doctorate and I always had so I wonder where this stuff came from um, so in fact I wrote a very small paper on it and then looking at the IR literature there was a bit of well we don't really understand how international organizations work so that was and it was this kind of moment in the um, well early 2000s where the the kind of sense in which the world order wasn't ordering, you know, uh, and it was going on for too long. Mm. Uh, and there were lots of questions around, I can remember Anne Dyken was talking about, you know, reforming NATO. And the League is always trying to reform itself. Um, and so, it, so it, that's why I started on it. Um, and then it just, it's one of, and I think this is probably a lot of people have experienced this if you work on the League of Nations. You, you think, I'll just do a little bit, but in, <laughs> confronted with this massive amounts of stuff that, you know, and also you start to see a bit like beverage, or it doesn't matter what I look at, it looks differently 
when I've got those goggles on. So I can't, you know, I kind of, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be working on it anymore. Mm. In fact, I'm mm. kind of not working on it. But in fact, it's just a way of connecting up the world. And also, a lot of people make sense once you see them coming from the international. A lot of people are drawn to that because there's something that in the national setting, there are novels about this too, in the national setting they can't, they can't express themselves or they can't be themselves. So the international organisation also gives you a, a new perspective you know, on individuals as well as... So I think, and I think Susan was trying to... Because you know, she's really a British, British political historian, British social historian. I think she was trying to think about this moment of... You know, really the big question moved from why Nazis to why empire. So for her, the, the League was a way of understanding the British Empire in a different way and, and the place of rights. And I, but I think in the end, what her work shows is how you know, the nation state becomes the dominant unit of organization. And really you, you see that in the way that Austria is forced to be an independent nation state. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think that that was, it was just, we were probably trying to, for, for different reasons, th this organization, you suddenly realize it's there mm. and you hadn't really looked at it before, mm. you know. But in fact, you've used a lot of its material and a lot of the people that you've studied have, got, have gone through it, so, yeah. yeah. Well, well, um, Pete, yeah. Thanks for your talk. You mentioned the leftist groups and, mm. and their opposition to some of the things that the League are doing. I was just wondering, why do they oppose this? Is it just because, as you suggested, the League is making them redundant, or is there something about what the League is doing, the actual content of the League's policies that they think isn't the best approach mm. to these issues? Yeah, it's a combination of the two, really. I think that, you know, I mean, I've sort of presented the League as having a kind of socially progressive side, but there's also, that's because that's what the activists were groping for and reaching for in the same way that anti-imperial campaigners also looked to the League and thought that the League might deliver, um, you know, uh, a, a kind of decolonizing sort of legal order that the that mandatory powers would actually produce independent nation states rather than this kind of lim ever-lending limbo. Um, so I think that the left... I mean, rightly, really, recognise that the League is about, still about state power. I mean, I've just not talked about it so much, especially on core issues, that it's, it's promoting a particular capitalist vision which is not radical, it's not at all radical, it's very, very conservative in the first instance. It becomes more radical, um, which is why people like Montague Norman grow to hate the League because the League criticises the gold standard and criticises that kind of the deflationary effects of the system. Um, but it's not a world where workers' rights are privileged. Um, and I think that's the other tension in that. You can see that the ILO is trying to promote that. That's really their vision is about bringing states and business organisations and workers together. But they only see, a bit like international socialism really at this point, they really only see... Um, industrialized workers <laughs> they don't see women and they don't see children and so on so there's a there's a variety of problems and of course it's also that you know as a sort of partly indicated 
the, the predomin there are predominant powers in the league, Britain and France, um, and to a lesser extent, Belgium and the Netherlands. It's a pretty European project, though uh, Central and Southern American states um, start to come in, and of course, Australia, New Zealand and Canada kind of widen the field a bit. Um, India is a member too, but it, 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 that's not, it's not a, the, the sort of state powers are also ones that are hostile to um, social internationalism. And the Soviet Union does join, but it joins in a very state-orientated way. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I think we'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave it there. But thank you very much again, um, Patricia, for that wonderful lecture.